My name is Stan Hayek. Uh, Get to be on staff here working with the next generation. Uh, and it has been fun with fall. It feels like fall this morning, but with fall, things are kicking off. In fact, our college ministry, we've got a couple weeks under our belt. Just super encouraged. We've got 11 student leaders that are engaging DMAX campus, engaging students. I talked to one, he's got a little bit of a busted lip. I said, what happened? He's like playing football with the students on campus on Friday. And so those guys are in the throes of, of just an outreach ministry, really, and it's been fun. We had an Awana kind of leaders rally. Awana kicks off this Wednesday. If you haven't signed up, man, you're gonna wanna get your, your fifth grade and younger signed up for Awana. Uh, we've got youth, starts junior high and high school, starts next Sunday. And so it's been fun. And even today, since it's a holiday, we've got kids in the service as well. Kids, I would say this, listen well, okay? Listen well. You know, Stan's got a little present for you at the end, okay? Uh, Something for you to get in trouble with later, so I can't wait for you uh, to participate. But you guys should have your sheets, kids, to follow along with. Adults, you should have your First Peter journals. We have new journals. If you haven't picked one up, uh, would invite you to do that. Um, but we're going to be in First Peter chapter four, and we're continuing this kind of three-part series on sharing in Christ's sufferings and glory. And so my portion will be First Peter uh, chapter four, verses fifteen through nineteen. And again, this is Peter, who is one of the disciples of Jesus. He's writing to believers knowing that they're gonna experience or they are currently experiencing severe persecution. They would be despised, beaten, even killed for their commitment to Jesus. Now, as we've kind of been talking, and here's your illustration, had in my pocket, uh, this idea of like tension, okay? I think what you would hear uh, as Pastor Todd taught last week and Pastor Travis the week before this idea of like tension that exists in our culture, meaning here we are anchored in Christ, right? God is the same yesterday, today, forevermore. So God, we anchor in the Lord, unmoving. And our culture has seemingly gotten further and further from the Lord. Follow that? <laughs> Once built on, founded on morality and, and, and Christian uh, principles, now we find ourselves getting further and further And as you get further and further, tension and tension builds up. You ever worked with one of these? You ever had it go wrong? (laughs) No one had it? (laughs) Yeah, those that laughed were like, yes, I've had that. (laughs) We used to have these, it's not in my notes, but in football, they'd wrap them around us and you'd be running. And some young freshman would let that thing go and wham, you're like, oh man, it hurt. Actually, it does kind of hurt. Okay, so this is what happens is, is we stay anchored in Christ and as there, people get, Further from Christ, it builds up a level of tension, a a level of potential for things to snap. Does that make sense? We're going to come back to that, but, but in their time, there was tension between them and the authorities, which is why they're experiencing persecution. And I would say that this, in our day, in our culture, if you think that our culture is far from Jesus then there should be a level of persecution that starts to be evident. And as somebody that works with the next generation, I would say that's already here in some way, shape, and form. For those that are taking a stand for Jesus in a culture that is perhaps far from Jesus. And so we need to be ready 
to share in Christ's sufferings and glory. That's what we're studying. I'm gonna pray as we dive in. Heavenly Father, as we open your word, would you open our hearts? God, would you allow your word to transform us and Lord, drive us to become more like you, Jesus? Would you do that work in us this morning as we study your word? And we pray that in the name of Jesus, amen. For context's sake, I'm gonna start in verse 12 and then read through 15 uh, to set this up. 1 Peter chapter four, starting in verse 12, says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Okay, we're gonna stop in verse 15 for right now and just examine that. What he's saying, again, he's writing to a Christian audience and what he's saying is, Christian, you being persecuted is no excuse for lawlessness, no excuse for you to retaliate. Okay, that'd be point number one is, is our persecution is no excuse for lawlessness. So he would have known that they would be met with physical violence, to which he said, you don't respond by murdering. When they confiscate your property, don't steal it back. If you retaliate, then you'll be suffering for your retaliation. You'll be suffering as an evildoer. And I love in this, this list of uh, murder, uh, uh, stealing things back, he also includes, evildoer, he includes meddler. You're like, one of these things is not like the other, right? Like, meddler gets put in that list, but in that being somebody, a meddler is somebody that pries into the affairs of others. Maybe not at the same level of murder, but I would argue that it's kind of the same root. It's caught up in in this kind of worldly mindset in seeking justice and seeking to control and kind of manipulate things here on earth. And that's what they all kind of share in common. When I read the meddler, it made me think of a sign that used to hang in my father-in-law's office before he passed, and now it hangs in our home office. And I think we have a, a sign. Uh, it's this, small, small people talk about other people. Average people talk about uh, things, great people talk about ideas. And this idea of like small people talking about other people, this meddling, this caught up with the worldly stuff. And he's saying, this is not fitting for you. You have a heavenly king, so therefore you should have a heavenly mindset. And moreover, uh, when these things happen, we don't need to retaliate. Paul would tell the Romans, we don't need to avenge ourselves in Romans 12, 19, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, I want you to consider this, our author. I wonder if Peter is telling them, hey, your persecution is no excuse for lawlessness, no excuse for retaliation. I wonder if our author, Peter, had in mind kind of the scene in the garden as Jesus was being betrayed. I think of John 18, where it says Judas, one of the disciples, came to meet Jesus in the garden, and with him were those carrying 
torches, lanterns, and weapons. A mob. <laughs> like every Disney movie's like ca capture that, right? Like there's a mob of people coming out towards Jesus. He just been done, he just gotten done praying with his disciples. And they're gonna take Jesus away. And this would be kind of the start of they take him away, then he's falsely tried, falsely accused, uh, wrongly kind of uh, uh, tried and accused, and ultimately carrying a cross, crucified. Now, what did, where this all started, kind of this scene in the garden, what did the author of our book, Peter, do in that moment when the mob came? Remember? He retaliated. That persecution, and again, he got it wrong on the road. He's like, Jesus, you shouldn't be persecuted. And to which Jesus said, hey, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. Try number two in the garden. Oh, Jesus is gonna get persecuted. What does he do? Peter pulls out his sword and he hacks off a guy's ear. Malchus, this is the high priest, the, the servant of the high priest, hacks off his ear. Now, I don't know if you know where that's located. That's right next to the head, okay? Peter is aiming to kill. <laughs> he's retaliating. He sees this injustice and this wrong and he literally says, I will take matters into my own hands. And he retaliates. To which Jesus said, and I love this scene, how the gospels, we got to get in scripture. This is just so fun. Jesus, like, while picking up an ear, healing a person, like, he's like, Peter, put it away. Like, I don't need your help. This is the will of God. Jesus sets the example that now Peter is calling us to. I think Peter gets it now as he pens these words. He says, don't respond with retaliation. In 1 Peter 3, 9, we, we already covered this, but when others bruise you, the calling is to bless. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. And that theme continues here in chapter 4, verse 15. This persecution is no excuse for lawlessness. Remember how Christ responded. And he goes on in verse 16 to say, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. This is another response we are to have towards fiery trials. These fiery trials. He said in verse 12, with fiery trials, don't be surprised. In verse 13, he says, when they come, you should actually rejoice because you get a share in Christ's suffering. And now he's telling us, hey, don't be ashamed when these things happen. In a fiery trial, if Travis covered it a couple weeks ago, I would invite you, if you missed that uh, sermon, to go back and listen to it. But the definition we've been working with is a fiery trial is an extra difficult test experienced by followers of God that verify our genuineness. It's God's verification process. And as Travis was, was preaching through that, I have good old Pastor Tom Nesbitt in my head with this uh, kind of quote that he had is, if you never, and if you've ever met Pastor Tom, he's in Ames, he's got the deepest voice, I can't do it, but he would say, if you never meet Satan on the road of life, perhaps it's because you're heading the same direction. <laughs> yeah, that, he's wise, right? <laughs> like this idea that this is why they're a verification process. Satan's heading one way, and if we're heading the way of Jesus, we should expect 
to have those encounters every now and again. And the fact that he conjures up fiery trial, the, 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 the flaming arrows of the evil one, it conjures up like when we meet Satan, he's saying you shouldn't be surprised. You should actually be encouraged. It's verification that you're heading the right direction. And moreover, when that happens, he's like, you should not be ashamed in verse 16. Now I know as we talk through this fiery trials, some of the rebuttal to that would be, uh, yeah, but they hurt. <laughs> like fiery trials kind of stink. Like that's not exactly something I want to throw myself into. And, and Travis, I love, he, he shared like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were tossed in a fiery furnace and they came out and they didn't burnt a bit and didn't smell like smoke and all that. Well, sometimes actually the fiery trials do burn you. Sometimes like there is actual consequences here on earth. And I think that because of that, sometimes we might be a little bit slow to put ourselves in that position and face opposition. I would say that this, that, that, that students right now at, at some of these schools, if they were to take a stance, it would mean for you to expose yourself to a level of ridicule. And if you take a stance on the wrong topic, it could mean something like a suspension for your lack of tolerance. It's a real thing. I have a friend who, <laughs> she's working. This is not just students, next generation, in the corporate world. You know the initiatives being rolled out. I have a friend that was working in and mistakenly used the wrong preferred pronoun for their coworker. I don't, none of it was intentional, but they looked and saw a biologically male individual and they used he, him instead of she, her. That resulted in my friend having to go sit down with the boss, be written up for that incident. If it happened again, there was a potential of like losing their job. Now, I'm not gonna say like, hey, what do we do with preferred pronouns and what are we supposed to do? Those are big topics. Just email Todd and ask him to do an extra point podcast on how we're supposed to respond, okay? Todd can tackle that. I, I do assure you what we should respond in love and we should be motivated by love, not motivated to win arguments, but actually to see souls come to Christ. That should be our motivation. But I'm, I merely mention those illustrations as real life tension that we live with. And so what do we do when those things kind of come about? And I think oftentimes, the, the temptation that exists there is to maybe disengage, to maybe not put ourselves in those positions. I think this is why perhaps 100% of evangelical Christians would say, it is our responsibility to share Jesus with other people. But why only 20%, one in five, actually would do that on a regular basis? I don't think it's a lack of information. I don't think it's a lack of ability to know what God's done, to know the need for it. But I think putting ourselves out there and potentially being rejected or, or having that level of opposition, I think that's one of the main factors of why we don't engage. We choose our comfort 
over God being glorified. And I would say when we have, and I, and I think that's in verse 16 where he's saying, you shouldn't be ashamed if you, res- you face opposition. That shouldn't cause you to hang your head. They're not opposing you. They're ultimately opposing God. But I think it's that level of, of potential shame that exists that, that keep us from actually engaging others. And why I think Peter has to, to clarify this in verse 16, saying you shouldn't be ashamed when you face a level of opposition, is because if we respond in shame, I think it inadvertently communicates a very strong message to an unbelieving world that's watching. To the non-Christian that's presented with, with two options. I can follow Jesus on this narrow path that you're telling me is filled with fiery trials and opposition, or I can take this broad, nice, level road and seemingly not experience those same level of trials. And when I look over at you on this narrow road, you seem miserable. You just complain. You seem like you're all about that road in your words, but in your actions and in your attitude, I would wonder if you made the right choice. It's what an unbelieving world sees when we respond with a level of shame. When we don't have that heavenly kind of mindset and given those options, I think that an unbelieving world would understandably choose the broad path with all of its momentary relief, not knowing that they're ultimately exchanging the temporary for eternity of torment and hell. It is important that we understand what God's word is saying here, saying do not be ashamed, but rather we ought to be glorifying God. And he's gonna call us in verses 17 and 18. He said, remember, there is a judgment that's gonna happen in the end. Verses 17 and 18 says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly in the sinner? Here's the point. Both the sinner and the saint will face judgment. Both the sinner and the saint will face judgment. Now there's confusion though around the word judgment because depending on which camp you're in, very different definitions for the word judgment. And he he says judgment is to begin with the the household of God. And I would say that that's when I'd say saint, I mean, those that are of the household of God, Christians, the saint. But we learn from scripture in context, Hebrews 12, that that judgment is better there considered to be discipline. It's designed to purge the sin from our lives and teach us to obey God. 1 Corinthians 11.32, we've got this on a slide. It says this, but when we are judged, this is written to believers, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This judgment is discipline. And it starts, he says, with the household or or the family of God. Now, parents, you probably know about disciplining your family, your children, correct? Correct. Uh, Proverbs 13, 24, this might be another slide too. Proverbs 13, 24 says this, 
whoever spares the rod uh, hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Because again, discipline is not done out of anger, but out of love to train and instruct. We discipline. You know who you don't discipline? The neighborhood kids, right? You don't discipline kids that are not your own. Now, I'm not saying you don't want to at times, okay? When the the neighborhood kids uh, come over and they're walking their dog and it just does its business in your yard and they just keep walking, and you're like, come here, <laughs> want to have a talk, right? Or, or, or perhaps the, 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 the neighborhood kid um, that, that as they walk through the neighborhood, hypothetically, after a Friday night football game when the stadium's near your backyard and they cut through your yard and they're cursing up a storm. Anybody, just me and my neighbor? Okay, but when that happens, you're like, I would like to exercise a little discipline. I would love to train you in this moment. But can you imagine... If you disciplined a neighborhood kid, a kid that's not your own in our culture today, if you discipline them, like take their phone away, put them in timeout, or, or gave them a spanking, you don't do that. You know why? You don't want to go to jail, right? You don't discipline those that are not your kids. You can discipline your kids, but those that are not your kids, you don't discipline. What he's saying here is, We are God's children, so he's going to discipline us. It's out of love. It's for growth. And so that's why this judgment, this discipline, starts with the household of God. It's to train us up. And specifically, as in mind, these fiery trials of persecution from walking this path that Jesus walked. And so this suffering for righteousness' sake. And what he says in our text, he's saying, oh, (laughs) You think being first is rough? You think having it begin, he says begin two times here. You think being first, you think having that judgment begin with you is tough? What about those that only receive a final judgment? That's what he says in verse 18. He's quoting Proverbs 11.31. In the Greek it reads, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to the godless sinners? The righteous are barely saved. We barely make it out. The only thing we brought to our salvation was the sin that made our saving necessary. We barely make it out. It's only because of Christ. What about those that don't have Christ is what he's asking. What about those that will not have Jesus stand in their place at judgment and they will give an account for their own sins, their own life, their own action? We barely make it out, only by the grace of God, all glory to Christ. What of them, the sinner and the ungodly? Both the sinner and the saint will face judgment. Saint, ours is temporary. It's because we have a heavenly father that loves us and this persecution that we're experiencing is affirmation that we're on the right path. But for the sinner and the ungodly, Their judgment will be eternal separation from God. And then he summarizes it seemingly with this verse 19. And I say this is our our take-home verse, really. Verse 19 says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
It says, let those who suffer in accordance to God's will. <laughs> Todd asked the question, when, when you're suffering, you do need to ask, am I suffering because of my fervent stance for Christ or am I suffering because of, and this is maybe a paraphrase of what Todd said, because of my stupidity, okay? Both of those things can cause suffering. One's a good, righteous one that's in line with the will of God. One is because of your stupidity and you should repent and stop doing that, right? And so we need to ask in those moments, man, what's the root of this suffering? Is it in accordance to God's will? Psalm 139 will be on the screen I love how the psalmist just kind of prays this. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And I love how verse 24 in the NLT said it, point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Seek God on that. If you're wondering kind of what's at the root of my suffering, the psalmist say, just ask the Lord to search your heart. Let God speak into that. And then he goes on to say, okay, suffer in accordance to God's will. He'd say, entrust your souls. He does not say, with your suffering, entrust your circumstances to God and he's gonna make it all better. He does something much deeper than that. He would say, entrust your souls, your life, your very personhood. Would you just give all of who you are and certainly that would include your circumstances, would you entrust it all? And he says, to a faithful creator. And I just underline that, this idea of a faithful creator. And I think Peter knows, at least my heart, that when I experience these trials, the thing that I begin to question is this, is God faithful? When fiery trials come, it's common for me to ask, God, are you, are you faithful? Are you committed to me right now? Like, are you still there? You, you do know what's going on, right? In these fiery trials, we perhaps can begin to ask those questions. And I'm encouraged in study this week as you read verse 19 and say, no, you have a faithful creator. Do not let your circumstance, what you're going through, called to question the faithfulness of God. Like, <laughs> his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is so much higher. God is working something out here. He is a faithful creator. It's not like the, the old info rotisserie thing, like where you set it and forget it. God didn't do that with us. It's like, well, I created them, but, you know, <laughs> that was the end of my faithfulness. Like, God intimately knows us, knit us together in our mother's womb, determined the times and places for us. God is, his faithfulness continues. It starts with our salvation, but he is just as concerned with our sanctification, our becoming more like Jesus. God wants to continue to walk with us in that, and we read that through this, this text that, that we can continue to entrust this Faithful creator. And to trust our souls, our very personhood, to a faithful creator while doing good. What he's saying there is, is keep doing what is right. Don't just endure the road of life. Rather, do good. What is that that he's talking about? I think looking at the context, he's saying the things we just talked about, that which 
honors the Lord in the face of persecution and suffering. Keep doing good. Don't retaliate. Trust that this is the Lord's will. Don't be surprised, but rather lean in. Rejoice. Don't be ashamed. Saying, keep doing those things. Again, I would just say that our take-home verse would be that, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Since I didn't give you a take-home truth, I'm going to give you take-home illustration application. Fair? It's a deal? Kids, this was a little, little prize that I was talking about, okay? Work with me here. Going full circle to, to the tension that we talked about um, as Todd was preaching last week, there was something in my heart that I kind of needed to reconcile, and it's this, that if we would say we're anchored in Christ, and seemingly we would say our culture continues to erode morals, erode Christian ethics, and get further and further and further away from Christ, right? That's what we would say. Then I would say, how is it that we're not seeing more of like that snapping? How is it that we are not experiencing persecution? If we would say there's a great distance between the Lord and where our culture's at, why is there not more conflict taking place? I think we've got a few options. One, we need to stop saying our culture's so bad then. That'd be one explanation is we just say, actually, our culture's really not that far from the Lord. I don't know who wants to make that argument in this room, right? But like, that would be one option is to stop Chicken Little saying the sky is falling. I do actually personally think our culture is pretty far from Christ. But that would be one explanation of why we're not seeing much persecution. Another uh, explanation would be actually, yeah, our culture is far from Christ, but I live and say and do exactly what our culture does. And so that's why I don't have any tension at my work. That's why I don't have any tension at school. That's why I don't have any tension is because I actually just live like the culture. You wouldn't be able to differentiate me as a Christ follower from our culture. That would be another explanation. Lord knows your heart if that's the case. I think of another one, and there's probably more, but the three I could come up with is actually, no, our culture is far, and I'm anchored in Christ, but somehow I've found like a way to like hide from our culture. Does that make sense? Like I'm anchored in Christ, we're good. Like I would be, could probably experience more opposition, but like I found a way to hide. What I mean by this is, is it could be that there are those within my neighborhood where we could be in opposition. But it's hard to be at odds with your neighbor. It's hard to have that tension if you don't know your neighbor's name and they don't know yours. That's what I'm talking about, hiding from our culture. I mean, there's a few that I've gotten to know in the year of living in my neighborhood, but there are others right around me. And I'm not saying that to get to know them if they're apart from Christ, that somehow they're gonna persecute me and you're gonna hear it on the news, but, but it would at least put me in a position to potentially have a little more tension in my life and it would probably start with knowing their name. You follow that? I think sometimes we can find a way to just hide from our culture. Despite Jesus giving us the example that he ate with sinners and tax collectors, he engaged the religious lostness 
Jesus, there's a way to be in the world, but not of it, and allowing that tension to kind of exist and have some of that. But it would probably start with knowing our neighbors. I think it's, it's the same kind of root that keeps people out of community, that really being small groups. And this isn't just a shameless plug for small groups, but this reality, it's like, <laughs> I think oftentimes the saying is, I'm pretty busy. I'm too busy for a small group right now. It's just not a good season. I think sometimes what people mean is my life is actually pretty clean. And if I get around a bunch of other dysfunctional, sinful people, it might get messy. If I get around a community of people, uh, and I think that's why they say, I don't know if there's anything in it for me. It's not why we're asking you to join a small group. You might be able to actually bless somebody else, bless their marriage, bless them along in the the parenting. You might be able to carry with each other burdens. And again, it's not the same kind of persecution and trials, but some of the same roots, if we could more broadly apply this text that I think would be there is like, no, I don't necessarily want to engage in that. I would want to challenge that. I would want to challenge us to have the attitude of Christ. And honestly, one of my biggest challenges come from my 10-year-old daughter. <laughs> this, uh, as a staff, we get Fridays off. And so um, it was just a week ago on Friday that my uh, oldest daughter, Danica, says, hey, you need to take Hannah, who's 10, you need to take her on the daddy-daughter date today. We kind of I've got four daughters. We do a little bit of a rotation, take them out. Uh, and so she's like, you need to actually take Hannah out. And I think it was actually Danica's turn to go get time with dad. So well, why? She says, Hannah's wanting to lead a Bible study with the neighborhood kids. And it would be helpful for you to probably coach her up before she does that tomorrow. And Danica knows the drill because she's done a Bible study with the neighborhood kids. And I said, okay. So we go to Panera and get her the bagel, which is pretty much a donut at this point, the cinnamon crunch one, right? So she's mowing that down. uh, And we're sitting there kind of talking through like what she could lead this Bible study through. And we go over kind of the study, what text we would use, kind of what illustrations. And um, they take that. And then we go back home and her and Danica go throughout the neighborhood, and they are popular kids in our neighborhood. I think one time I counted 16 little munchkins in our backyard one time. They just opened their our pantry. I mean, we have no problem getting to know the neighborhood kids because of my kids, right? So, so they go door to door to invite these neighborhood kids to their Bible study so that they could share Jesus with them, help them have an encounter with the living God, with the gospel, and I am challenged by their faith and they're wanting to apply. And, they're, and I'm telling you, even after that, it was fun to talk because putting themselves out there meant they were exposed a little bit. Guess what? It didn't go perfect and everybody repents, trusts Jesus and goes home and their whole household gets saved. Like there's these challenges, but I'm so proud of my daughters for not being jaded, not being ashamed, not being burned out for their faith, but but just this childlike faith, if this is what's true and these people don't know it, shouldn't we be about that? Yes, and please forgive your dad for being a hypocrite. 
Church, what are we going to do with these truths? I think that's my thing is we, we study God's word. It would not be enough to just simply, simply come and take it in and go out amongst a culture that everybody's saying, yep, they're far from Jesus. Boy, they're going to burn eternally and do nothing about it. Never engage. Would we understand that it is an opportunity for us to actually see and be a part of God's work? Will we get to share in the sufferings of Christ if we engage that? Yeah, most likely. Is it worth it? Yeah, absolutely. That we would entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And as a way to remember that this week, one, I think we get to take communion, which is great. Understanding that Jesus is not calling us Hear this, hear it clearly. Jesus is not calling us to do something that he hasn't already done. He gave his life up to reach lost sinners, of which that is us. And he would call us to take up our cross and do the same. And so we're gonna remember that Jesus's body was literally broken. His blood was shed for us. I feel like that is helpful to frame in actually responsibly going out and meeting our neighbors this week and starting there.